Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, I'm going to put you in a scenario here and ask to, to, that the, uh, the listeners put themselves in the same scenario. Okay. Imagine a stranger appears before you. Okay. Uh, tall, thin stranger, like very thin, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, dressed in, say, let's say a dark, uh, dark robe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. This isn't sounding so great. <laughs> well, well, wait, wait till wait till you hear this uh, this fellow out because he makes an offer. This, if you would like, and this is purely optional, I will tell you to the day, to the minute, even mm-hmm. when you will die. Mm-hmm. I have this information here in my uh, in my file. And I will share this information with you. All you have to do is ask. Would you? Would you? Would you like to know? Would you? Would you want this date and this time to uh, mark in your calendar? Absolutely not. No. No. I mean, that's the kind of mystery you want to remain a mystery, right? <laughs> do you think I want to obsess on that for the rest of my life, every single moment? Well, that's one argument. Yeah. Robert, <laughs> do you think I really want to? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, to know exactly when you're going to die, it would, uh, it would be helpful in some ways, right? You know, if you've been estate putting off. Estate planning, yeah, sure. Yeah, estate planning. Um, if there are certain projects you've been putting off, it might be nice to know if you actually have time enough to complete them. And, uh, or if you should, should maybe shoot for, instead of writing the great American novel, maybe you'll just try and write the great American short story or the great American haiku, uh, depending, right. depending on yeah. uh, what the forecast is. Or, yeah, a little fly fiction. Yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, you would conceivably then be living your life in fear, ticking down mm-hmm. ever closer to that moment when this uh, same individual in the dark robes uh, and the deathly thin hands mm-hmm. uh, might reappear and uh, come to collect. Yeah, you might even say that you're so preoccupied with this inevitability that mm-hmm. now has a date on it, that you could do nothing but think about it. So any sort of efforts at writing a haiku or anything else would be completely hamstrung. Yeah, you would just have that date ticking in your mind. You would just, uh, every, and even say it's, say it's a July 13th, uh, 2080, you know, that oh, that's would, nice. That, that's <laughs> nice would, and far out. Yeah, but, but even then you would hear, you'd hear about 2080 and it would, it would, it would, it would just mess you up or even just to hear July 13th every time it like comes around. So, I can see the value in, in not uh, hearing the thin man out on this particular case. Yeah, well, and this plays into the idea of why we we uh, exercise a kind of version of this in the form of what's been called the ostrich effect. Mm-hmm. Um, also, ignorance is bliss because there are just some things that we don't want to face, and it's human nature. All of us do this. Do this, even if you think that like you're the most self-aware, self-actualized person on the earth. There is something that you're avoiding. Right. I mean, when it comes to our awareness of the world, all of us live inside of a carefully maintained and constructed worldview. And that worldview is not going to, in the same way that you'll have a video game world, that that may incorporate some aspects of reality and some aspects of actual physics, but ignore other real-life rules, you know? Mm-hmm. Like the character jumps off a building and he'll still die, as one would. But uh, but maybe he can run exceedingly fast without you know running out of steam. That kind of thing. All of us create this worldview, maintain this worldview that is going to ignore certain risks, incorporate some other risks, totally exaggerate uh, other risks, and uh, and and underplay still other risks to your everyday life. Yeah, even if that means that you could have some really crappy outcomes, say to your health as a result. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But hey. 
what if what if the thin man could give you that date? I'm, I'm we've played with that idea of just you know this apparition showing up, but turns out that researchers, scientists have actually come up with an idea that is a kind of death test. Yeah, yeah. In this case, the it wouldn't be a. Uh, you know, a medieval uh, embodiment of death that would be showing up and, uh, and offering you the information. It might be a little contraption that you wear on your wrist. Physicists at the United Kingdom's Lancaster University uh, developed this uh, test, which uses painless lasers to analyze endothelial cells. Uh, these are the cells that line blood vessels under the skin and are a possible uh, health indicator. Uh, so the basically this laser analysis would look at the state of these cells and uh, would be able to extrapolate uh, what your general health is right now and how much time you have. Now, this is not a watch you can pick up at your local store. This technology is not ready to roll out, but it's sort of a, a road sign um, on the highway to a possible future in which we see more and more of wearable technology, implanted technology, which gives us some measure of real-time information about the state of our health. Yeah, here's another example of it, and this comes from the Institute for Molecular Medicine in Finland. And they would look at the level of a particular biomarker, which that biomarker could indicate a patient's risk of disease or a likely response to treatment. So, for example, cholesterol levels are measured to assess the risk of heart disease, right? That could Mm -hmm. be a biomarker. So what they did is they took blood samples from over 17,000 generally healthy people. They screened, screened them for more than 100 different biomarkers. And then those people were monitored over a five-year period. So in that time, 684 people died of a range of illnesses and diseases, including cancer and cardiovascular disease. And the scientists had discovered that those people all had similar levels of four biomarkers. So that's where it really becomes much more laser-focused in terms of what are we looking uh, for here and what can predict death in the next five years. And that research that they were doing... That was actually just another subset of research that had been ongoing by Estonian researchers. They initially made this link with about, I think, 10,000 people. But they were so skeptical about the results that they went ahead and said to the folks over at the Molecular Medicine in, in Finland, hey, do you want to you know, try this out and see if you get similar results? Well, they got uh, identical findings, <laughs> which points to this idea that we are getting closer and closer to this idea of, hey, can you check out my biomarkers and let me know what's going to go on in the next five years? I like the idea of having even a, almost like I can imagine a future where you have all your wearable computers that are going on, your implants, your little handheld device, your little holographic displays that are letting uh, you and others know about various stats in your life. And I can imagine Every morning, you call up that sort of holographic uh, death embodiment, and you just sort of check in with death and find out what the <laughs> forecast is. Or you in, think that's how they're going to market it? I death like watch. It. You know, well, death watch. Death doesn't have to. You can choose which form death takes. Death can take a, like a classic medieval mode. I think mm-hmm. that's what I'd go for. But death can be, uh, you know, an attractive man or woman. Death can death be avatar a, could be Betty Boop. Yeah, uh, Hello Kitty. I mean, you, you name it. <laughs> but but then I wonder too. In the same way that, you know, if you're like me, you're always realizing for the first time that there's something on your phone that is making a little pop up. Mm -hmm. Like you didn't know that you're, that this news app is, is somehow turned itself on so that it needs to inform you when there's a news update and then you have to go in and turn it off in your settings. 
we end up in that scenario with this where you realize, you know, I don't want to hear from death every day. I don't want my normal checkup. Uh, I would rather just live in ignorance of this. I'm going to turn this off, even though all the technology here is at my fingertips. Yeah. I mean, you could be like, hey, Siri, what's what's my death watch today? Hold on a second while I check your biomarkers. You know, it's like you could you could do that constantly and just drive yourself nuts. Or you could just be like, I like you said, I am just going to toss this uh, into the trash and not think about it because I don't want to know. So this is one of those cases where knowledge maybe isn't power or perceived power. Well, right? knowledge can be power in the long run, right? But not knowledge in the short run. Like if you tell me I'm going to die in five years, uh, that conceivably could make the next five years, uh, you know, a little more streamlined, but it's going to really crush me right now. So I don't want to hear it, right? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, this is basically like knowledge in the short term in the long term and whether or not it just sucks. Yeah. And nothing could probably suck more than hearing, hey, guess what? You have an STD, right? Well, yeah. And I'm, I bring this up because mm-hmm. it's related. And we just finished talking a lot about uh, about syphilis. So, um, yeah. you know, we went into some of the, you know, the, 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 the shame that is often associated with STDs. Uh, in addition to the varying treatment, uh, you know, available. But say that, say someone was to tell you, hey, you have syphilis. Today, that is easily treated. The sooner you know, the better. But on the other hand, they're still going to come with a lot of shame and then social anxiety over, oh, well, I have syphilis. How did I get syphilis? Who did I give syphilis to? And am I a bad person in some sense because I have it? Yeah, and but, you know, some people might be information averse to that. Right. And some people, I mean, uh, a group of 18 to 24 year olds, because this is, as we know from our research, this is the group that tends to get STDs the most. In fact, I was thinking about the HBO girls uh, show in which the character Hannah gets HPV. And so it turns out to be this sort of more like a moment where she realizes that all adventurous women will have an STD. Eventually, right? Mm-hmm. And so she kind of weaves that into her, um, her worldview. But not everybody does that. Not everybody is like, I need a plot point from my show. Right. I'm going to go see the doctor and see if I have an STD. In fact, a lot of people would rather not know that information. And again, that's sort of the, again, sort of the short-term thinking when over the long-term term thinking. It's that basic human failure to value the long-term view over the short-term view. Yeah, and nothing bears this out more than this this neat little study about STDs and information aversion. And the study was conducted by Josh Tassoff, who is an economist at Claremont Graduate University, and Ananda Ganguly, an associate professor of accounting at Claremont McKenna College. Yeah, and it's basically the same scenario we talked about at the top of the screen. You know, imagine a, a thin man in a robe comes up and says, hey, I have a file here, except he asks you, would you like to know if you have herpes? I mean, this is the basic scenario there. And indeed, if this individual were to come up to me and ask me, I feel like I would say, yes, let me know. Tell, tell me if I have herpes. That would be some good information for me to have at this point. All right, so they kind of did that, except for they had lab coats on, right? Yes, yeah. and it's and it's framed in, in an actual study. Yeah, and they asked university students whether or not they wanted to get tested for herpes simplex virus. Now, they talked to them about the two different types. The first type being the kind that just cause cold sores. I'm yeah. sure everybody's familiar with that. H- this, HSV-1. Yes. Mm-hmm. The second type being the one that causes genital sores. Now, here's the rub. They sent them... 
uh, along with little pictures to identify the genital sores and the cold sores so that they had a very clear understanding of the differences. And moreover, I feel like those photos probably incited in them a bit of fear. Right. These are your, these are, these are not your, uh, this is not your herpes medication, uh, you know, person walking in a field. Uh, television spot. <laughs> right. These, this is the right. the the full on WebMD slash Google image search herpes dive. Yeah, that you did not really want to see, but right. you saw. So they were then told that a blood test could find out if they had either form of the virus. And then Tassoff and Ganguly they designed the experiment to eliminate any reason, sort of extraneous reason that someone might decline to get information. Yeah. So they wanted to make sure that they weren't declining the test because they didn't want to have their blood drawn, right? So that's one thing that they said to him. Hey, we can have all the students have their blood drawn, but if a student chooses not to get tested, that they would draw just 10 cc's of their blood, and in front of them, they would pour it down the sink. Yeah, so it's, it's not the fear of the needle that's playing into this because you're going to get stuck with a the needle. They're going to draw your blood. Yeah. But if you say no, then all right, we'll just pour your blood down the sink. Yeah. The second thing is they made sure to let them know that all of this was confidential so that they weren't worried about their results being shared with anyone else. Right. It's not going to be announced to the whole group. It's not going to be published in the study. So, yeah, it's not it's not a fear of the needle. It's not a fear of public shaming. Yeah. It's just a fear of the information that they are wrangling with. And to avoid the information, the, to opt out of the information is a $10 fee. Yeah, that's the third thing. They were yeah. like, if you don't want to get tested, you're going to have to actually pay us $10 not to test you. Yeah. So it's like the man in the robe come up and say, hey, if you give me $10, I'll uh, not tell you if you have herpes. Again, they, they uh, structured it this way because they wanted to make sure that it was very clear that the people were burying their heads in the sand here. Right. Like an ostrich, or that's always the, the idea, right? And There's a price tag on ignorance here. They have to yes. actually purchase the ignorance. It's not the passive ignorance of, uh, I don't want to know what that credit card bill is, so I'm just going to ignore that envelope. It's like, it's not the, uh, I'm just, I don't want to deal with that, uh, that, that email from uh, my mother-in-law, so I'm just going to let it sit there unopened. No, you have to actively pay $10 to avoid the results of the herpes test. I'd pay $10 to avoid my mother-in-law's emails. <laughs> uh, all right. So while only 5% avoided the HSV-1 test, three times as many avoided testing for the nastier form of herpes. So here, here we have very direct conclusions that people were saying three times as much. I don't want this. I don't want to know, even though this could help them in terms of their health care down the road, the long term, right? Yeah. And even, I mean, the kind of the immediate short term, like the not very long term, like your immediate, um, you know, sexual activity, your immediate health is, is involved in all this. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really troubling to, to, to read the, the findings in this study. Yeah. And, uh, and when they, when you actually asked them, said, well, why didn't you, uh, why didn't you want this? Why did you opt out of this information? Why did you pay to remain ignorant? Mostly they would say, well, I, I just I didn't need that added anxiety. I didn't want to worry with the with the added stress of knowing, potentially knowing that I have this uh, this illness, that I have herpes. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of like that people are like, I already have a ton of existential dread and anxiety. Mm-hmm. I don't want this on top of it. And it might seem to, to some people like I can't believe they made this decision. But again, think in your own life. 
maybe it was an STD test or something else that you were avoiding because you felt like it was just the weight of that one more piece of knowledge might be the breaking point. Well, you know, there's comfort in, and I'm, we keep saying ignorance, but I want to, to frame it a little, a little more, uh, compassionately. There's, there's comfort in ambiguity. It's, it's almost the comfort of a quantum state, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't open that box, you, then, then the, the cat is simultaneously dead and alive. And you can cling to the possibility that Schrodinger's cat is alive. And so, by not, by opting out, they're keeping their, um, their state of herpes infection in a quantum state. And you can take comfort in that quantum state because if I don't know for sure, then there's still this chance that I'm good. And I feel like every, I love the way you describe it. I think that's perfect. That quantum state, everybody has experienced that. Whether or not it's a test that you just took in school, right? Mm-hmm. And you're, you're worried that you didn't pass it or you didn't do as well as you think you might, uh, have been able to. Just being in that uncertain state means the possibility of, of getting a really good grade still exists. Yeah, another health-related option that comes to mind, and, and I think of it because I think I have a, a, a dental checkup coming up sometime this month, is like right now, I either have a cavity or I don't. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't I don't have any you know discomfort or anything, but you know how it is. You go in, and then you, you just wait, and you're waiting, you're waiting, and then they'll tell you, oh, you have a cavity, and then you, you, you're, you're crushed, or at least I, you know, I feel crushed, and then they have to, to deal with it. But you, you either have a cavity or you don't, but you're, fe- you're fearing the, uh, the absolute judgment that comes down in knowing for sure. Do you know, I just went last week yeah. and I have a cavity. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And now I'm saddled with the knowledge that I'll be in the chair. All right. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to talk about, um, why this, uh, sort of scare tactic strategy doesn't work and what we can do. All right, we're back. And I got to tell you, my, my tooth is starting to hurt now. Ah. Uh, All this talk. The, the psychic dread is is, uh, is boring into you. It is. Yeah. it is. So I'm going to distract myself from that and say, hey, uh, if you were a public health worker and okay. you were going to, you had this information now, that, that this sort of information aversion exists in people because it's tapping into their existential dread, um, how would you then go about trying to get people to access information that might help them in the long run? Yeah, that's a big question, and that's uh, certainly uh, the question that the uh, study from Claremont uh, Graduate University uh, dived into a bit uh, at the uh, at the end of the study. Uh, because, yeah, doctors don't want that scenario where the patient finally shows up after a 20-year absence and the problems that they've encountered over time have, have escalated. You know, because it, it, almost always the case, early um, detection is uh, is key to to effective treatment. Indeed. So, what do you do? Well, one of the things is, and maybe this seems a little bit uh, disingenuous, mm-hmm. but one of the things that you could do is to try to sort of maybe play down the the idea of the test itself and the results and the fact that you might have, you know, in this mm-hmm. in this scenario, like a, a just. A terrible raw case of genital sores, right? Instead right. of showing everybody those pictures, maybe just talk more about the long-term management of this kind of thing and and the benefits that you can have in finding out the positives, in yeah. other words. Yeah, and, and sometimes it goes beyond just like the hard, like scaring people with facts. I mean, the facts alone can be scary, and you you want people to to know, you want people to 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 have the facts at 
at their disposal. But but you also look back at, say, uh, the old syphilis posters uh, that we were talking about in previous mm-hmm. episodes, the ones that would uh, which would uh, would show women in sort of a monstrous light with oftentimes literally with, with ghastly skull like faces and yeah. like, pulling off of demonic masks, that kind of thing. And so like that's sending the message uh that, that, hey, if you have one of these, then it's probably because you've been sleeping with monsters and you yourself are a monster. And that's a scary message to send as well. Um, yeah, it was a kind of slut shaming, really, yeah. th- these old posters. So what if you updated him with like the Hannah Horvath uh, version from Girls? We were like, hey, every adventurous woman has an STD. Yeah. You see her like, you know, taking off on a plane. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like... I kid, but you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, there's there's a way to reframe it. Yeah, yeah, framing it in a sense like, this is just the kind of stuff that happens. Let's treat it because treatment makes things easier. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's we're, we're boiling it down here, but that's that's basically the, uh, the strategy that uh, they put forward in this study. Now, the other recommendation they make comes down to just frequency of tests. Now, uh, the test in this study... You know, it was a big deal. You're going into this, uh, you're signing up for this study, you're, you're, you're filling out the paperwork, you're, you're being shown information about herpes, and it's all leading up to this test, and, and whether they're going to, uh, tell you if you have, have herpes or not, they're actually going to test it, or if it's going to be poured down the sink. Um, in, in a way, the kind of this big ritual ends up playing out before you. The argument here is what you do is you make tests like this far more routine, and the more routine, the, the the test becomes mm-hmm. the less of a big deal it is. It's the the, the the version of it I keep thinking of is all right. Imagine you know you look you check under your bed every night to see if there's a monster there. All right, and there's never a monster there, and you can feel kind of comforting in the fact that based on on uh, on, on regular studies of the environment, there's not a monster under your bed. But if you only check for a monster once a year, then that check becomes this this more powerful um, experience. If you only go to the doctor once a year, then you have this just added psychic weight associated with the ordeal. Yeah, and now we should say, though, that some of the, the problem here is access to health care. Yes. And, and an obstacle would certainly be that if someone did not have a health care plan in place or one that was um, affordable to them, then it would be a little bit more difficult to get that checked out all the time. Yeah, because, I mean, there's certainly people with ready, easy access to health care who avoid going to the doctor uh, out of uh, information aversion. Uh, then there, But then there are going to be people who have the added incentive to avoid going to the doctor because of the financial obligation involved there. So you see, I think you see a varying scale of the, the economic and the access um, issue influencing and strengthening the information aversion mm-hmm. or in in other cases too uh, even replacing the information aversion maybe it becomes a situation where I would love to know but I have zero access to what I need yeah which is really heartbreaking yeah because those results can can be terrible I mean if you cannot catch things at certain stages so all right um, there's there's a good I think base stock uh, of information about how um, that would affect us, particularly our health, right, and mm-hmm. how we make decisions. But um, there's an idea that we also carry around with us in, in bigger global themes, information aversion. And there is a mathematical physicist and professor of, math- of mathematics at the University of California, Riverside, who goes by the name of John Carlos Baez. And he has a great... Uh, blog post about this 
talking about how global warming is part and parcel of our aversion to say, ah, oh, this thing, this this uh, blue-green rock that we're all sitting on and we love and sustains us, hey, we might be messing it up. And how people are just kind of like, nah, really? <laughs> really? I don't, I don't think so. Indeed, because no one wants to hear, hey, you've kind of messed up your planet. Here. I mean, it's 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 bad news. It's news that comes with a certain uh, amount of responsibility uh, at the individual level, as it certainly as well as the, the corporate and state level. Uh, so to whatever extent you can just ignore the information or excuse it away or blame it on uh, on this, that or the other, then uh, then all the better for your immediate short term um, mental health. Yeah, and he points directly to information erosion in this sense, and he says, quote, let's try extrapolating from this. Global warming is pretty scary. What would people do to avoid learning more about it? You can't exactly pay scientists to not tell you about it, but you can do lots of other things, not listen to them, pay people to contradict what they're saying, and so on. And guess what? People do all these things. So don't expect that scaring people about global warming will make them take action. If a problem seems scary and hard to solve, many people will just avoid thinking about it. Yeah, and you just readjust your worldview to where you don't have to engage with that kind of thinking. Uh, there have been recent uh, papers that have come up talk- t- talking about the way we use our social media, especially Facebook, yeah. how we inevitably end up uh, just creating the, the bubble of comfort uh, regarding what shows up in our news feed and what we end up uh, up seeing. So the the troubling information, the stuff we don't want to hear, that just gets pushed out into the into the dark. And the only thing in the light of our little campfire is the stuff that is uh, reinforcing our worldview and comforting our worldview. Which was contrary to what people thought would happen in social media. They thought that people would have more access to different opinions and information. But the opposite seems to be true in terms of how... Um, information is being selected and shared, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we have access to more information than ever before. And at times it feels like we're dumber than ever before uh, on the Internet. But I think, again, it harkens back to that idea of if it's if it's terrible news, nobody's like, ah, I am a, an adverse information monger. Tell me. Tell me all the things I don't really want to know, but I really know. I mean, who? I, I'm sure there are some people out there who do that, but most people tend to shy away from it. No. But I guess the the thing, hopefully maybe the thing here is that enough people will want to hear about the other side being wrong because that strengthens their worldview and and their agenda that maybe it will keep those things bubbling up to the surface. Uh, But then we go into this whole idea of cognitive bias because I was thinking, you know, this is somewhat of a byproduct, too, of Mm -hmm. cognitive bias and cognitive dissonance and how we take all these pieces of information and try to fit them into our worldviews. But I do like what Baez is saying about the global warming issue, which John Mualem has said, too, in his book, Wild Ones, which is you keep pushing that idea of the polar bear, you know, slipping on ice that is melting away underneath it. And it becomes less effective and people don't necessarily want to see it because it feels like there is uh, there, there's no control over the situation. Um, so what do you do? You try to give people information and a sense of control mm-hmm. over what could be done. And to this end, we're actually going to be looking into the topic of rewilding. Um, so look for that in a couple of weeks. But we hope to explore the issue of global warming uh, through more positive effects of what we actually can do. So I'm going to return once more, though, to the the idea of uh, of the Reaper. What what if we did, in a sense, check in with death 
every day to the point to where it became normal. Uh, what if, what if, uh, what if death wasn't this thing that's just lurking, mysterious at some unknown point in the future, but we actually just lived our lives with a better long-term understanding of how our life was going to work? Well, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who would say that we need a better relationship with death. Mm-hmm. You know, not that we need to sit around the campfire with, with the Grim Reaper all the time and have a beer, but you know, that we do need to look at it as a, a natural part of living as opposed to something that needs to be vanquished. In this NPR piece, they were talking about a community which is actually trying to talk about death with their loved ones in a real and meaningful way so that the end of care, um, end of life care could be put into place and could be most effective and compassionate for people who have advanced states of disease or, or just age mm-hmm. and what to do with their stuff and all of these things that, you know, are just become like this mental, um, claptrap of our existence that we just put up in our mental attics and leave up there to just get dust all over. Yeah, all that stuff in the house, um, the the second floor bedroom that we think we're going to be able to use our entire life, uh, because that's a whole another area. It's just the, the, the how your living space is arranged. We tend to not think about the long terms of, well, am I going to reach the point where I can't climb stairs anymore? Mm-hmm. And how am I going to roll with that? Yeah, so and we talked about this a little bit earlier, like it would be so great to have an experiment with a community, mm-hmm. 100-year-long experiment to, to just infuse that culture of that community with long-term instead of short-term. Because very much uh, of our existence, at least our Western existence, is concerned with the short-term. You know, we, we know about the long term, but we're really worried more about like what's going to happen tomorrow or, you know, in the next year. Yeah. And, and it, it does make me wonder to what extent we can mess with that. Like how much of that is culture? Mm-hmm. How much of that is, you know, based in, in our conscious understanding of the world? And how much of that is just the, the organism itself? Because ultimately the genetic mission is just to reach the age at which you can reproduce, reproduce, spread the genes, and then uh, get busy dying. Because that's what the body starts doing at that point. I mean, that's what our bodies are doing right now. Our bodies are dying. Death is a thing that happens to the body after it has fulfilled its genetic mission. Well, that all seems pretty clear-cut until you put on top of that uh, configuration consciousness. Yes. Right? The hard problem. Why are we here? Why are we doing this anyway? Yeah, and then that's then we're in the the, the same human mess we're always in this uh, this tug of war between uh, between consciousness and the body between uh, uh, the realities of how we uh, ascended to this point and, uh, and and what we want out of it. Indeed. All right, so there you have it. So, hey, you want to check out more episodes of the podcast? You want to read our blog posts? You want to watch videos? Then head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you will find everything, including links out to our various social media accounts and to our YouTube account, which is Mind Stuff Show. And now that you've heard about information aversion, are, uh, does it affect your life? Do you now look back and say, hey... I see that it permeates my own existence. Let us know about that. And you can do that by sending us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 